let me introduce my guest here because we're very excited about this. So, and and tell me if I if I mispronounce uh, uh, your name, M- uh, Misha Krupa is a uh, is a columnist and historian. He's been published in such venues as the American Conservative, Consortium News, Chronicles, a magazine of of American Chronicles. He hosts Votum TV. Heretics Podcast, where he interviews dissident and competent, mostly Moroccan voices. He loves the Latin Mass, Italian cuisine, and Pat Buchanan in that order. And he's also appeared on the Two Mikes Podcast with Colonel Mike and Dr. Michael Scheuer on Network Radio. Dr. Scheuer has been a guest many times here on the Mike Church Show, going all the way back to 2012 or 2010. So glad to have him for the first time here on the Crusade Channel. Is it Misha? Or Micah? Well, in uh, in Polish, it's Michał. In English, it's just Mike. But as long as you don't call me Michail, because that might make me a Putin agent, so <laughs> let's be careful with that. <laughs> I watched Mike your, is fine. Mike is fine. Mike is fine. Okay. Well, we're, we're Mikes, okay? Uh, and since you're, you're a, a Latin mass devotee, today is my birthday, so I'm born... Yeah, I was going to say, happy birthday. Stolat, as we say in Polish. A hundred years and more. No, no, I would... So, we're, we're born on Candlemas. I'm born on Candlemas, and so it's a, it's a great day to, to, to meet you. But my first question is, Mike, is how come you don't sound like Cesare? Uh, Your accent is real. The Paul, he he has broken American, good English, but he still had a lot of Polish in what he say. He leave out noun and and, and he leave conjunction out many many times. Well, uh, you know, if I were to speak with a real Russian accent, then I would really be put in age, and I can do that. I can do that. You know, I gotta be a. Uh, I gotta speak the. Uh, I can do New York Italian if you want. Forget about it. Hey, bada bing, bada boom. What's going on? You know, I'll stick to my. Uh, I'll stick to the baseline English. I think. Okay. All right. I would. I would say to most people that. Uh, well, I studied hard in school, but I'm actually a sort of a Canadian expat, also in Poland. So hence the accent. Okay. All right. So we saw that first mystery, and that was important for our listeners. Indeed. Um, I saw your interview on Redacted. And uh, I, I knew that you followed me, and I think I, I had been following you, and I had seen some other reporting that you had done, but I didn't have any idea or no- knowledge of the depth of your knowledge of what is going on between the the, the Poles and uh, between Poland and Ukraine. And this is what people don't know. It's not being reported here in the U.S., as you told. Uh, who's the gentleman that hosts Redacted? Uh, Clayton Morris. Yeah, Clayton Morris. As you told Clayton that you know people in the United States, and he told you, we don't know that our listeners and our viewers don't know this. So you know they thanked you for coming on their show. Um, and the first thing that I heard now, are you in Poland? Yep, I'm. I'm. I'm constantly in Poland. Right okay, now. I'm just right next to the city of uh, Wrocław in. Uh, South uh, Western Poland, just near the German border. Okay, wanted to make sure our listeners and our viewers know that he is actually live in Poland. Okay, so first thing, and, I, and I'm going to kind of get repetitive here because it's in your wheelhouse, and I wanted our listeners and viewers to be able to hear what you had to say. He asked you about the border crossings and how many Ukrainians have crossed from Ukraine into Poland. Folks, the number is just staggering. It's shocking. And no one is reporting this. So tell us how many how many Ukrainians have gone into Poland and then where did they go afterwards as as far as you know and what and why? 
Well, the crossings, as of about three weeks ago, when I spoke to Clayton, and this was recorded by the uh, Polish Border Service, so the crossings going into Poland from Ukraine ever since the start of the war on February 24th of last year amounted to just under nine, uh, just under 10 million. Now, that doesn't mean that there are 10 million Ukrainians in Poland. However, it does show the huge number of uh, people escaping uh, or people claiming to be refugees that have crossed into Poland ever since the start of the hostilities. Now, currently in Poland, we estimate that we have around between three and five million Ukrainians. So that would include the ones that came after February 24th. Many of them claim to be refugees, um, plus the about two million that we already had in Poland before the war, uh, so-called you know Ukrainian cheap labor migrants that came into Poland af as the result of the uh, the Maidan, so-called Maidan revolution in 2013. Right, right. So we've had this huge minority in Poland. Uh, there are sort of uh, tendencies on the liberal side especially, but now it's become mainstream to sort of tell people that, well, all of a sudden we become this multicultural state and you have to accept it or shut up or you're a Putin agent. But a lot of people are not going along with that. But when it comes to the numbers, we can say that we've had more than we can take. And, and a lot of these uh, crossings or a lot of these Ukrainians that have crossed into Poland, many of them have come back to Ukraine. What they do is they do these so-called these so social border crossings in the sense that they take, for example, uh, social payments in Poland, they bring that money back to Ukraine, and they come back to Poland for more money. Now, apparently that's being taken care of right now uh, by the competent agencies, but that was a sort of way of milking the Polish system. However, it's worth noting that also a lot of these uh, Ukrainians that crossed into Poland after 24th, they obviously headed uh, in a more Western direction to Germany, some went to France, Spain, and other Western countries. So uh, almost 10 million have crossed. Uh, previously, there had been millions that crossed. You see, the story that we that, that we get, uh, that we have been told uh, by our mainstream media, which no one that I know listens to any longer, but I mean, we listen enough that we can hear their narrative. The story that you know we have been told is that Ukraine is a, a free a bastion of freedom in the world. It, it, I mean, they literally it's the it's the fountain from which all freedom springs. You know, if you go to Ukraine, everyone is free, everyone is fat. Everyone is rich. Everyone is happy. And it was just a paradise. So why would anyone have left Ukraine to go to Poland? Mike? Well, that, that's the question, right? I mean, uh, first of all, a lot of the Ukrainians that crossed into Poland uh, after the 24th, they actually came from western Ukraine, where there were not military hostilities taking place because the Russians are concentrated in east that's where the fighting is taking place. Now, obviously, you've had some missile strikes, for example, on that NATO training camp in Yabarif at the beginning of the war, but that was a missile strike on a military target. There aren't, uh, and, apart, and apart from the civilian, obviously, infrastructure, the, electron, the electric infrastructure that's going down right now as part of Russia's strategic air campaign to weaken the Ukrainian nation state to force it into negotiations. I mean, civilians are not dying en masse in Western Ukraine. So a lot of people were asking this question, uh, after the war, why are the people from Western Ukraine in such huge numbers escaping to Poland if we're not seeing any military operations taking place? I mean, that sort of uh, goes against the status of refugee if you're leaving literally a war zone, but right. there is no war zone. So, uh, but that those became questions that became uncomfortable for the establishment because, as I said, any at least for the first couple of months when you ask these questions, you're automatically labeled a Putin stooge, yeah. that you're uh, endangering Polish security, and so on and so on. But going back to your question, Mike, about Ukraine being a bastion of democracy, well, that's just a joke because 
Uh, ever since the start of the war, I mean, Zelensky has outlawed oppositionist political parties, oppositionist journalists. Uh, even in 2012, uh, sorry, 20, 2020, even, the Atlantic Council, which is, you know, the main globalist outlook think tank in Washington, D.C., published an article where they said that Zelensky is betraying or undermining, at least, the, uh, the fruits of the Maidan Revolution, the so-called Maidan Revolution that took place in 2013. And that was supposed to be all about democracy. So up until, I would guess, February 24th, the West had its doubts about Zelensky. But all of a sudden, when you put Putin into the picture, oh, he's against Putin. We have to present him as, you know, the modern-day Churchill, uh, the modern, you know, uh, model of democracy and freedoms and so on and so on. But it's all, you know, it's all hogwash. It's BS. Okay, so uh, we're visiting with uh, Mike Krupa, who is live in Poland. And one of the other questions uh, that Clayton asked you, um, tell our listeners and our viewers, Mike, tell them all about what the Ukrainian army, that the, there are, uh, are units of the Ukrainian army that are making their way, they're being invited in by the Poles, and they're actually transporting some of their bioweapons or bioweapon systems. I heard you say that, and I'm like, no one has reported any of that. What can you tell us? Well, uh, we have to be very careful here. I don't want to be uh, misquoted in any way. But okay. first of all, we know... We'll just that, say weapons, then. We'll just say yeah. our weapons we and know, troops. We know that the... Okay. Right. We, we know that the Russian Ministry of Defense has been making claims which they prepared are substantiated by evidence, this evidence, at least from the Russian perspective, treated as such as being put on the website of the Russian Ministry of Defense, whereby uh, American entities and some uh, financed by none other than uh, Hunter Biden were conducting biological research uh, on the territory of Ukraine before February 24th of last year. Now, exactly what these laboratories were doing, it's hard to say, although we have proof from none other than Victoria Nuland, which she was testifying in Congress last year. I think it was a, to a question to Senator Rand Paul, where she said yes, or Marco Rubio might have been, that we did have biological labs in Ukraine, uh, but she didn't go into the details. Because up until that time, a lot of people were treating the mere premise of American labs in Ukraine as some sort of Alex Jones conspiracy. That's thing. right. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, the cat is out of the bag. So now we have to, you know, let, let's discuss what was in those laboratories. And that's where the Pentagon and a lot of other agencies, and Hunter Biden, obviously, and Joe Biden, are not willing to open Pandora's box because there could be secrets that stink there. So I haven't heard anything about the infrastructure of the labs being transported to Poland as a way to hide them for potential Russian capture. I would rule that out. I have seen information mostly coming from the russian side so it's hard to verify uh but I, you know i don't discount it uh, just because it's coming from the russian side you have to go into deep you have to go deeper into these issues uh that show that these bioweapons these bio biological labs were actually intended to create bioweapons that were to be used against russia uh, or at least the ethnic russians in the donbass at some point in time now whether that is true or not we still have to verify it however the claims that the russians are making are very serious, and I think it's very unwise for the State Department and the Pentagon uh, to let these claims, if they're especially if they're unsubstantiated, uh, to fly around the internet because that could give rise to you know a lot of conspiracy 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 theories. Unless, of course, what the Russians are saying is true, and we're just ignoring uh, 
facts that are uncomfortable to the uh, U.S. military industrial complex. Okay, talk for a moment then, if you will, then, about what uh, you and Clayton talked about, um, uh, uh, about how the Polish government is treating uh, this war, of how you're funding it, and uh, of, 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 of if you ask the average Pole on the street if he wanted what they're doing, that uh, what would he say? Uh, so tell us what they're doing, and then what would the average Pole, if you... No one got to vote on this, I heard you say. So what is the Polish government doing uh, with NATO and with Ukraine and with the United States and with the whole war, the proxy war against Russia? Well, so far, from February 24th, Poland has been the most vigorous supporter of the regime in Kiev, uh, I think, out of all the states in Europe. That's for sure. Now, if we throw in the uh, entities from uh, the Baltics, like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, that makes a more complete whole. However, Poland has been at the sort of forefront of, uh, you know, vigorously, radically even supplying Ukraine with weapons, with money, and taking in a huge amount of refugees or so-called refugees, uh, and uh, also, you know, animating this narrative that Russia is the evil empire that Russia has to be basically destroyed, that, Putin, that the Putin regime has to be taken down. So basically, it, it's like neoconservatism on steroids in a Polish version. Okay. You call it that. <laughs> so we, we've been in the vanguard on this. And in the last few months, uh, as things have been going worse and worse for the Ukrainians, a lot of people, this, is, this took place around the summertime, we've seen a shift in attitudes whereby... At the beginning of you know March, everybody was for the Ukrainians. Right now, we're seeing a breakdown in society where not only are Poles becoming more hostile and more negatively attuned to the mass of Ukrainian refugees that are here in Poland, uh, but also more and more people consider this war to be not our war. As a matter of fact, tomorrow in Częstochowa, uh, where you have Jasna Góra uh, Shrine, the Our Lady of Częstochowa, mm -hmm. there will be a Congress of what's being called the Polish Anti-War Movement, uh, with a huge campaign of billboards going up in Poland that will just say, this is not our war. And I'm noticing that a lot of establishment figures, government figures and oppositionist figures, all united in their love for Zelensky, are coming out against this. They're saying that, oh my God, they're saying this is not our war. This must be a Putin operation. <laughs> so uh, thank goodness for the uh, bravery, and I'll name him here, Dr. Leszek Sikulski. Uh, he's an expert in geopolitics from Częstochowa who's spearheading this initiative. But generally, as I said uh, during the interview with Clayton, if you were to ask the average poll on the street right now if he wants to go to war uh, for Zelensky, I'm 100% sure the average Kowalski in the street will tell you, hell no, as I said to Clayton. The only people that are interested in escalating this and actually bringing Poland into the physical fight with Russia, which we will most surely lose, uh, are you know NGO activists from big cities, politicians from the government and from both the opposition. I can say right here that the only, we have only one member of parliament who's been consequentially against this war and against putting Poland into any crosshairs of this war, and that is the arch-Catholic traditionalist monarchist Grzegorz Brown. So Grzegorz, salute to you. That's an honorary <laughs> mention right there. There's only one guy uh, for over 400 MPs who's actually saying that what the government is doing is insanity. So... This, but, 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 you know, a well-organized minority can, can do great things. So that's where we are right now in Poland. Okay. I want you to talk for a minute, though. Your, the, your, your government, though, is, is committing res uh, resources that it's taking from the Polish people 
to give to Ukrainians and to give to the war effort, correct? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Ukrainians that are in Poland uh, are entitled to a lot of the same social benefits that Polish citizens are. So a lot of people are asking the question, you know, why? I mean, they're not Polish citizens. Uh, we're basically doling out a lot of money, not only to the regime in Kiev uh, and possibly to Zelensky's cocaine stash, but also to the, <laughs> the massive Ukrainians that are here. So it's really becoming uh, it's really becoming a tragic situation because we're draining a lot of our resources. Inflation is skyrocketing. We're in a very precarious energy situation because we've cut off all the Russian gas and we're in a desperate, frantic uh, way uh, looking for other sources of energy, um, including uh, very pricey LNG or what they call freedom gas in Washington right. that we're only selling, obviously, out of the goodness of our hearts to our allies in, in mm -hmm. Europe. Um, so... I think this is the most dangerous situation that my country has been in since 1939, in the sense that we're itching closer to war, we're almost asking for a fight, despite the fact that if you look at it from a purely military standpoint, and I'm talking about uh, analysis that comes out of people who actually uh, study the art of war and who've taken, you know, uh, actually, who've taken part in combat operations. Scott Ritter, for example. Scott Ritter, Colonel Douglas McGregor, right. Andre Martiano, for example. A lot of people, and, he, and even some Pentagon figures who are obviously anonymous sources to the Washington Post, but they, you know, sometimes uh, talk about the uh, the rationale of why we shouldn't be, you know, putting so much out there. Uh, in, in pure terms of military art, there's no way that whatever we do will not only beat Russia, but, you know, abolish the Putin regime, so-called. So, but you, what you have to understand about Poland is a lot of the people that are in our government right now, they came out of the solidarity movement, whether they came from the right flank of solidarity or the left flank of solidarity, they are all imbued with this historical conviction that it is the mission of the Polish state to wage a war against Russia. So these guys and, you know, the prime minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, our current uh, president, a lot of members of parliament, a lot of journalists believe that we have finally reached a historical point in Poland's history when we can finally uh, fight the Russians. That the whole 30 years after 1989, we were coming to this moment and we can't back down. That this is the moment where we have to show who we really are and, you know, kick those Ruskies uh, in the behind, so to say. This is the so moment that they've all been waiting for. fixation. Right. This yeah. is the it's moment that they've, all been, but that they've all been waiting for, not you. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, the, as I said, the average poll uh, doesn't have this ideological fixation. Now, that doesn't mean that the majority of polls have a, some sort of love for Russia. But I think if you ask the average hard-headed poll if, you know, predictable, economic, cultural relations are in the interests of both countries, and for example, we should have cheap gas from Russia, they will say, yes, why not? I mean, we're different peoples, obviously. We've had a relationship that's been fraught with conflicts and war. Sure, but that's ended. Russia is today a different country. Poland is today a different country. We have new generations coming along. And may I dare to say, uh, Russia in many respects presents a better model of social revival than the, uh, than the liberal West. I mean, Vladimir Putin said straight up in a, a couple of months ago in his speech that what we're seeing right now in the West is pure Satanism. So, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, uh, all the more uh, uh, amicable relationship with Moscow is in the interest of a country that, at least as some conservatives and Catholics in Poland claim, uh, should remain Catholic and Christian. So I don't see nothing wrong in that. But as I said, to many 
just the thought of that in Poland uh, is uh, amounts to you know heresy. Okay, so uh, Mike uh, Mike Krupa is with us. He's live from Poland. He is an author. He is a columnist. He's a historian. He is a TV and radio presenter as well. Uh, so you and I are Catholics. Uh, we can talk Catholic stuff here for a moment. So the average faithful Catholic, the ones that I see in the rosary rallies, 150,000 of you, of you took place in rosary rallies uh, two summers ago. Um, the ones who are regular mass goers, who take the faith seriously, you have a lot more, and you have things in common with our Russian Orthodox cousins, m more so than a secularist in Kiev, don't you? Yes, of course. I mean, I could tell you a story where uh, uh, I know a Russian friend of mine who came to Poland in 2015 uh, for a conference on the situation in Syria. Okay. And... It's funny because uh, the indult Latin mass in Wrocław is right next door to the local Orthodox Church, the, the Polish canonical Orthodox Church. So the conference was on Saturday, and on Sunday, uh, after a night of very heavy Polish uh, cuisine and uh, some light-hearted uh, percentages in our glasses, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, I told him, you know, okay, I have mass at 9 o'clock, I'll be seeing you later. And he says, oh. You're going to Mass. Uh, are you, and I told him that it was obviously the Latin Mass, the Trinity Mass. And he says, well, you know what? You know, I have my La the Orthodox Church across the street, but I'm going to go to church with you. So I'm like, hallelujah, brother. Let's go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, the commonalities between especially, you know, us traditionalists and Russian Orthodox are many. And there's no point in hiding it. I mean, I'm not afraid of being called a Russian agent of Putin's stooge. I mean, it's like calling people racist in the States or anywhere else. It just doesn't work anymore. It's just, it just got boring. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, after Russiagate, if anybody takes that label seriously, I mean, it's just insane. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the social outlook of Catholic traditionalists and regular Russian Orthodox uh, faithful is very similar. You know, we do see the decay of the West. Uh, and actually, as a matter of fact, what's interesting when Benedict XVI uh, authored Sumorum Pontificum, and it was published, I think the only Christian uh, non-Catholic major leader in the world who came out in support was the then Moscow uh, patriarch. I forgot his name. He was the one before the current one. Okay. Uh, but he, he gave a statement where he said that uh, we are reacting very positively to the fact that Benedict XVI is resurrecting the liturgy of St. Gregory. So, you know, I mean... That was a signal. Nobody obviously paid attention to Poland because we can't pay attention to anything positive that the Russians say. That's bad, right? <laughs> but it was noted in a lot of Catholic media. So that tells you something, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, not going into the theological differences right now. I mean, I'm not competent in that. In that oh, neither am I. I, I, I but uh, just, just talking on a social plane and things that could be done together, for example, to preserve the natural law, to preserve family, to preserve a semblance of Christian civilization, uh, to tell you the truth, in Europe right now, other than other fellow Catholics, there's nobody better uh, than Russian Orthodox faithful to, to join the fight. And I'm saying that in all seriousness and from the experience that I have and from what I've studied during the issue and the fact that, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin, I'm not going into his conscience right now, but the language that he uses to describe the current culture war that's taking place, I mean, it's like Pat Buchanan asked one day, right? Is Putin a paleoconservative? It turns out he is. 
Well, it, he, he, he certainly talks like a paleo conservative. And I point people that when they say, oh, you're just buying all the propaganda and all that. I'm like, why do you think this war has lasted as long as it has? It says it's because there was a just war theory based rule of engagement that Putin, ins- as I understand it, maybe you can comment on this, that President Putin insisted on that we're at war with Zelensky's government, with those that would, that want, uh, that, Oppose us liberating. Remember when when the Russians go into the Donbass, when they go into Luhansk, when they go into Donetsk and Zafirovaya, when they go into the, the, the Donbass, that is at the request, the request of those countries. They are viable countries. You can trace them all the way back to the 13th century. They've been there for a long time. They're always uh, united with the Russian Federation primarily because they're the enemies of the Muslims. They're the enemies of the Turks. They're strength in numbers. And so that region was always there with the Russians and the Ukrainians were, were, were somewhat friendly as well. As you're, you're in opposition to the Ottoman Turks who were evil and who marauded and raped and robbed and pillaged. So they didn't maraud as much into Russia and into the Donbass and those other regions in Crimea because they didn't want to have to fight the Russian army they didn't, or, or, or the Russian forces, if you will, the uh, the, the Russo fields, uh, uh, if you will. So there is this, uh, uh, and people don't notice even if you explain it to them, that when Putin issued, when, it, when they invaded, the first thing that they did was to acknowledge, hey, you need to have a referendum in Donetsk, in Mariupol, and they did. You need to have a referendum in Luhansk, and they did. What was the result, Mike, of the referendums in the Donbass to join or not join the Russian Federation? Well, the results, if we're to believe the Russians, and I have no doubt to not believe them because, you know, the Donbass is ethnically Russian, just like Crimea, uh, were overwhelmingly to join uh, the Russians. Now, I can't give you a number breakdown right now, uh, but obviously it was at least the numbers that the Russians gave. Where the majority was in favor that that's not surprising in one bit but let's remember that a lot of the people who accused putin of being this gun hole uh warmonger who was just waiting for his opportunity in 2014 when uh, uh when donetsk and luhansk asked you know to join russia putin told them no he said you know you're part of ukraine you have to solve this problem with the ukrainian central authorities in kiev uh, because a lot of economists were telling Putin, you know, if we absorb the Donbass right now, it's going to be it's going to be a drain on our economy. We have to be realistic about this. And Putin didn't want to escalate. The historical record clearly shows that the reason why we had Minsk One and Minsk Two, the agreements, by the way, which several former statesmen have now told us that they were just a sham and they were just a way uh, to buy time for the Ukrainians to gather their forces and potentially attack the Donbass. And this is coming from Angela Merkel. Uh, former French President Francois Hollande, Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, has stated this twice now, that they were a sham, that we were only using them to uh, to buy time, to build up our forces, thanks to NATO. Putin wouldn't have entered these agreements if he knew what was going on. So uh, it took him eight years to realize that he was being played, which goes to show that uh, if he was anything, he wasn't a warmonger, he was, a, he was naive maybe, but he wasn't a warmonger. Now, what took place on February 24th and the week before when the... Uh, the two republics declared their independence and came into a collective security agreement with Russia, whereby Moscow recognized their independent status. Uh, it's basically the same uh, situation that took place in uh, in Kosovo, with one exception. With one exception, in Kosovo, you didn't have any referendum. 
you just recognize Kosovo as an independent entity. Okay. So, you know, the Russians say, we're using the same precedent as you did in Kosovo, but we actually had referendums here. I mean, whatever you think of referendums, you, didn't even, you guys didn't even play that game. You just ripped a piece of uh, Serbia off from, uh, from the, uh, the motherland and claimed it as an independent entity, which today is basically an Islamo-Albanian narco state. Uh, used as a proxy by NATO to, you know, goad the Serbs into submission if they become too close to the Russians, which we're seeing basically on a daily, even on a weekly basis. Um, so in, in terms of just war theory, as I said, I'm not an international, I'm not a scholar in, in law, but from my vantage point, Putin had at least a lot of strong arguments going for him. Uh, I'm not going to say whether he was right, whether he was wrong. But to say, first of all, that this was an unprovoked aggression is a blatant lie. That's not notice true. How every, notice how every time they talk about it, they always say unprovoked, unprovoked, unprovoked. Because they have to make their point, you know, that uh, if you don't say unprovoked, people are going to say, well, maybe Putin didn't wake up just one day and say, hey, I'm going to invade Ukraine, right? No, it was provoked. We know that for sure. Uh, and the second thing is, is that he did uh, have a legal basis for uh, his action. Now, how we interpret that, you know, that's open to discussion. I'm pretty sure a lot of lawyers are having this discussion. Sure. From my point of view, this was provoked for sure. And second of all, there are, he has a case. He has a case going for him that after eight years of what was going on and after what the self-determination referendum shows in the Donbass, uh, he had a right to intervene. So right or wrong, but he does have a case. So, so the, the interesting thing to me is, uh, uh, so the war begins, the invasion, invasion, the liberation, as I, as I call it, began on February 24th, but on the 18th of February, he gave that speech, and in the speech, you know, I had to listen, you probably could understand him uh, in his native language, I couldn't, I had to read the, uh, the listen to the translator, but he said, I'm doing today what I should have done seven years ago, which is, which is what you just said. So if you want to do a little homework on this, and you want to learn a little bit more about it, about this and look the United States is in up to our eyes in this you do not think that this that, that we're not in on this we are completely in on this all right our defense our, our department of offense the weapons that we're sending there the whole thing we are in it we are fighting a war against Russia you need to understand this but when he said I'm, I want to do I'm doing today what I should have done seven years ago he was basically admitting that look I, I believe the West I, I, I accepted the treaty. You're calling me a dictator and a tyrant. I accepted the treaty at face value. Minsk won. I accepted the Minsk, the Minsk Accord. I accepted the treaty at face value. But then he said almost immediately, uh, Poroshenko, whoever was the president, moved Ukrainian forces, the Azov Nazis, into, into Mariupol and moved Ukrainian forces armed with Western-backed armaments, and they began immediately shelling the, uh, the 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 regions of the Luhansk and and, and the Donetsk, and and, and uh, they didn't have a way to defend themselves, so the Russians were aiding and assisting, and and this is what the claim was. Well, he's aiding and assisting these people, and the Ukrainian army strength. The Ukrainian army were bombing Ukrainians, correct? Yeah, in, in essence, people with Ukrainian passports, indeed. I mean, uh, the whole notion that, you know, Russians would leave their own people defenseless is obviously ridiculous. I mean, this was to be expected, right? Right. But we have to understand, in 2019, there was a RAND Corporation report. It's called Extending Russia. Now, RAND Corporation is obviously the think tank of the sort of military-industrial complex in Washington. It's not Democratic. It's not Republican. It's bipartisan. It's basically, you know, outlining the... Uh, 
as, as it says, RAND, Research and Development, outlining uh, policy goals that they believe Washington should be pursuing. This report is public. Everybody can read it. It's called Extending Russia. And in this report, and I, this is 2019, so Trump was still in power, they say that one of the ways that we can weaken Russia, sort of put Russia off balance, is by arming Ukraine. So the goal was, was very clear. This wasn't about you know, defending Ukrainian sovereignty, uh, democracy. Ukraine was to be used as a proxy against Russia. And can you imagine if there was a public report published in Moscow, in Russian, and translated into English, right. entitled, Extending the United States of America, <laughs> and let's, let's give weapons to Latino separatists or illegal immigrants crossing into the United States yep. uh, to undo historical injustices. How do you think Washington would react to that? I mean, well, under Biden, he might help him. <laughs> yeah, everybody would be all over this, right? right. Or, chi or, if, or if China uh, produced such a report saying, extending the United States, let's weaken the United States. And they say it so blindly uh, and openly. But as long as it's directed against the Russians, oh, don't worry, because, you know, the Russians are orcs, they're animals, they don't have any interests, they're barbarians. So people have to realize that even from a typical, you know, ethical standpoint, the Russians are not going to take this. When you're saying openly and publicly, yes, our goal is to weaken you, our goal is to carve you up, colonize you, and basically bring you back to the days of when Boris Yeltsin was running around in his underwear in Washington. <laughs> we want a drunk Russian president, a lackey, who's going to be serving our oligarchic interests in the States. And the best thing at the end of the day would be if Russia were to fall apart into uh, into different parts. That's something that, by the way, uh, Dick Cheney was proposing just after 1989 uh, when he was uh, posted as Secretary of Defense, that that is what he would like to see. But now they're saying it openly. So, you know, whatever one thinks of Vladimir Putin, whatever one thinks of Vladimir Putin, you can't expect the Russians not to react to this. I mean, it's just illogical. Right, it right. had to happen. Uh, uh, I concur. All right, we're going to wrap up here uh, with Mike uh, Krupa. Let's let, let's end on a Catholic note because you're a historian, and our listeners and I, I find that the history of Poland is basically kind of the history of Europe, or Christendom. As Poland goes, pretty much Christendom goes, um, uh, and uh, it, 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 historically. The Polish people and the Poles have been a, a a part of the story and the struggle against the Ottomans, against the Muslims. You know, they were uh, the, 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 uh, for almost a millennia, over, or just about a millennia, Polish was so reliably Catholic that you know when Vienna was going to be taken over by Ali Pasha and uh, 110,000 men army strong. Who was it that came to save the day? It was Jan Sobieski. Um, this guy on Twitter, by the way, who claims he's like 30th generation Sobieski. I think he follows you. I know he follows me. He's, he says he is Jan the Sobieski on Twitter. And he said, no, I don't say that. I am a Sobieski. I go, all right, man, I take you at your word, bro. But I want to just check him out. Yeah, you should. I, I, I'll, I'll find his profile. I'll send it to you. Um, but my, my, uh, my question is, is, and I know my, uh, my friend Cesar very well. He's, he emigrated here. And he is just flabbergasted. He is almost distraught about what's going on in modern Poland. That there was a moment a couple of years ago when it looked like that the 
conservative Catholics may actually be, uh, one of them may actually become prime minister or minister of defense or something, and it turned out that he was just kind of, he was controlled opposition, and now there is, for official Poland, there is no, it seems, Catholic position, but yet it's the the Catholic faith that kept the Poles alive during when they were part of the a compulsory uh, a vassal state after the Warsaw Pact of the Soviet Union. You know, it was it was the Catholic faith that kept Poland together. There is that Catholicity still there, Mike. Let me put it this way, and I'll say a few things. Okay, um, th- th- this might be a shock to a lot of uh, American viewers, but believe it or not. During the Soviet times, or Polish communist times, Poland was much more conservative than it is now. Really? Like it or not. Yeah. During communist times in Poland, obviously, one of the big negatives was uh, abortion was legal. It was rampant, sad. But on the other hand, for example, pornography was illegal. Drug use was illegal. We had the death penalty. The church obviously had its problems uh, with the authority. But there was no collectivization. Uh, you could sell the products of your labor. Uh, people in general attended church. I mean, a lot of members of the Communist Party had their children baptized. Mm. So I think the main battle, you know, we fought Islam. We fought communism in our history. We fought Germanic <clears throat> pseudo-Christian expansion and so on and so on. Um, but I think the greatest battle that we're struggling with right now in Poland is with liberalism. That battle will determine the future of this nation and of this country because the idea was after 1989 we fervently anchor ourselves in the western bloc so in nato in the european union and a lot of these people who believe that we should be in the western camp were fairly naive because they thought that they were joining the west as it was for example in you know 1956 right so good old america with conservative traditional family values anti-communist and so on and so on what they failed to notice is that after 1968, the West in general uh, underwent an extremely radical transformation into an entity that can be no longer called the classical Western civilization. So anchoring ourselves in the West has brought to us the entire cultural sewage, including, you know, pride parades, gender identity, uh, NGO sponsored from the West. We have a whole generation manipulated by gender and this BLM crap theory. And, and all the, all the and, you know, with, with the rise of social media, a lot of minds are being poisoned. But at the same time, a lot of people believe, you know, if we're not going to be anchored in the West, even with these negative trends, and this is a theme that comes from a lot of uh, sincere conservatives in Poland, they believe, oh, my God, if we're not going to be with the West, we're going to be with the Russians again. You know, it's a tragedy. Well, you know, I remember, I think somebody... I'm not sure if it was Pat Buchanan, but somebody once stated that if Ronald Reagan uh, had an ideal, for example, of a Russian, proud Russian nationalist leader that he could do business with, it would be Vladimir Putin. Uh, It's like, uh, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev was what he was, but Vladimir Putin would be sort of the ideal, right? Mm -hmm. In in a way, we can say uh, Putin is Russia's Ronald Reagan, right? Uh, You might not like us, but you will respect us. So you have a proud Russian leader at the top of the hill. Now, going back to Poland... This fight against liberalism that has been infecting everything, uh, sociologically, economically, culturally, religiously, is intertwined with what a lot of people call Voitilianism, obviously referring to Cardinal Karol Wojtyla, Pope John Paul II. Right. Because in Poland, not only do we, traditionalist Catholics, have to fight against you know the liberalism coming from the West, 
and being manifested in our policy, internal and foreign, uh, but also the church in Poland, which is very much uh, infected with the spirit of Vatican II. Um, I would say in many ways to a larger degree, even than some uh, church entities, obviously dioceses in the, in the West, because we had John Paul II and the entire sort of heritage that flows from the, his 27 year of pontificacy in the, uh, in Rome and the fact that he was Polish, uh, that closes a lot of minds because you can't ask a lot of uncomfortable questions. Now that's changing. Latin masses obviously has made a huge comeback in Poland, the society of St. Pius the 10th, God bless them. Uh, where I attend uh, most uh, Sunday liturgies. Oh, you're a schismatic too. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm 100. percent You're a Putin agent. Hat. You're a schismatic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm all over the place. You know? So uh, I, I, I'm the perfect target. I'm the perfect. Target. You are. <laughs> um, it, it, it's making a comeback. So basically, just to summarize, if we lose the battle against liberalism, we lose everything. I still think we could turn things around in Poland. That'll manifest itself in social policy foreign policy, economic policy, and possibly in a revival of Catholic tradition among the clergy, which is, by the way, already happening among the young priests. Good. You can see that. The bishops are still, you know, uh, let's play the guitar, Vatican II, Kumbaya, but that generation is slowly <laughs> going to the other side. But I can testify truly that a lot of young priests, they're not necessarily associated with the SSPX. They'll get there. They'll get there. Um, they're really traditionally oriented in the mind. You know, they'll read uh, Rorate Celli, for example, in their seminary at night. They'll listen to Mike Dude. Uh, they'll read SSPX <laughs> publications and so on. So there is a ray of hope. Okay. Uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Uh, and the Rosary does miracles, right? So every time Polonius, we have troubles, we go to our mother, a Yasnagura shrine, and we ask for her blessing for imperfect and sometimes, you know, gullible and naive nation. But I'm still hoping and holding out that we can change things here. And obviously, we're counting on your prayers, help, and uh, anything else that uh, we can get in terms of moral support from our American brothers and sisters. So you're more uh, Father Jerzy Popiolowski than you are uh, Cardinal Wojtyla. Wojtyla. Uh, I would say I'm more Cardinal Vyshinsky. Vyshinsky, okay. So, yeah. Father Jersey, do I have a little placard of Father, of Father Jersey? And I tell a story every year on the day that he's killed, you know, about how the uh, the Polish mafia was like, hey, man, you're not going along with the program, bro. You need to stop preaching all this, uh, <laughs> this, this conservatism to these Poles. Okay, final question. All right. How do you say Mother Mary, Our Lady of Szczestochowa, pray for us in Polish? Give us a little Polish uh, uh, Jew. Matka Boska Częstochowska, Mur się za nami. Now, obviously, Our Lady of Częstochowa is, has also uh, another more official title as the Queen of Poland. Mm -hmm. uh, and we obviously, on the 3rd of May, have our liturgical celebration of the Queen of Poland, which was established in the books by Pope Pius XI, who, by the way, was Papal Nuncio in Poland in 1920, when the Bolsheviks were heading towards Warsaw. He was actually one of the few diplomats who didn't leave Warsaw uh, when the Bolshevik onslaught took place. So God bless Pius XI. Um, so yeah, Matka Boska Częstochowska Królowa Polska. Our Lady of Częstochowa, Queen of Poland. Okay. Uh, or Our Lady of Częstochowa or Pranobi. So do you know the Latin. Or Pranobi. <laughs> okay. Amen. All right, brother. Hey, man, God bless you. We'll have you back. Let's stay in touch. 
I would love to come back uh, anytime. Just let me know. And uh, if any updates come along my way, I'll be happy to share them. Let's just hope this doesn't end, as Condoleezza Rice used to say, in a mushroom cloud, in a mushroom <laughs> cloud. We're hoping it doesn't go that way. But uh, we're all dependent on the power of prayer. God does miracles, and we're all hoping for one. So let's all do what we need to do um, and count on the Lord. All right. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Our Lady. Mike Krupa, live from Poland. God bless you. Blessed Candlemas to you and all of our brothers and sisters in Poland. We'll say a rosary for you today. Amen. God bless you guys. Take care. All right. You too. That's uh, uh, live there all the way from Poland, folks.